The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the Son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you're listening ad-free by subscribing on Apple Podcast, Patreon, or searching The Murder Diaries ad-free in your Spotify app. Welcome to The Murder Diaries. I'm Natalie. And I'm Paige. According to the National Institute of Justice, the majority of missing person cases are solved, and the majority of the cases solved bring victims back alive. In 2012, for example, around 659,000 of the 661,000 missing person cases reported that year were resolved by the end of the year. But what happens when cases aren't solved within a year? Or five years? Ten years? What happens when a case has been cold for 45 years? Today, we're discussing one such case. It's the case of a young man, the family who maintained that he would come home, and a niece who decided to fight for a resolution. His name is Brian Vargo. This is his story. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Brian Thomas Vargo was born on September 8, 1955, as the fourth of five children. His family was middle class and owned a bar restaurant in Houston, Texas, where Brian would occasionally work as a teenager. The family was also very active in the St. John Vianney Church, which is a Catholic church. Those who knew him described Brian as being introverted and quiet, a man of few words. His shyness made him blend in with those around him, but his tall height and good looks made him stand out. We were able to speak with Brian's niece, Amanda, the daughter of one of Brian's older brothers, for this episode. Although Amanda never met her uncle, she was able to tell us about his upbringing and personality based on her own research. What was his relationship like with his parents and his siblings? Was it complicated or? I, I would say that it was complicated. There are definitely more complicated relationships out there that I've heard of. This was more of like emotionally complicated, I guess, because Brian was an introvert and you didn't know much of what he was thinking or how he was taking in things that were going on. And then my grandfather was also an introvert. So again, not knowing much of what's going on inside his head. My grandmother on the other side, uh, extrovert, very social. She would actually say that you could definitely tell who were the introverts and the extroverts at the dinner table and who would carry the conversations and who would not. <laughs> And, and Brian was one of the quiet ones, and my grandfather was the quiet one. But as for their relationship, you also have to think of how old my grandparents were at this time and as Brian was growing up, and the fact that they had three older kids. And my grandfather was very traditional in the sense that he took care of everything. And my grandmother was a housewife and she took care of the kids. She she did dinner, all those types of things. My my grandfather was the one who went outside the home and earned the money. Those were the dynamics. And it seems quite archaic to people now. You hear a lot of 
people commenting on Facebook or, you know, any other social media, Reddits, asking why Brian's mother didn't do more. But that was that was the dynamic of households back then, um, was just the father is the one that takes care of everything. She also discussed Brian's relationship with his siblings, especially the oldest siblings, such as her dad. And you'll also notice somewhat of that, that dynamic with my father having that, oh, well, he got everything paid for. He got this and he got that, but I didn't get this and I had to work for that. There's a little tinge of those thoughts from my father about Brian. It's, it's almost like a, a, you know, like a jealousy thing. Like I had to work for the things that that I have. And I know with the first kid, your first kids probably, um, I only have two. But with the first kid, you're really trying to, you want them to learn things, but also do it your way. Like learn things the way that you want them to learn things. And then, you know, with the subsequent kids, it's kind of like, okay, well, they're just going to learn things the way that they learn them, whether it's because I teach them or because their siblings teach them. And it's usually because the siblings end up teaching. So it, it, things like that. So yeah, Brian had more advantages than my dad. And there's a little bit of bitterness and jealousy on my dad's part. Amanda described Brian as thoughtful, empathetic, insightful, analytical, and even a little bit shy. One of Brian's siblings, who were keeping anonymous, said that Brian considered himself a mathematical genius. Brian took advanced math courses in high school and even won a math-related award. In fact, his family said that Brian was able to turn any conversation into a mathematical equation. So I think that Brian, what comes to mind is he's very introverted generally. My grandmother said he was always interested in numbers and formulas and just math equations and stuff like that. But from what I hear from his friends, especially a specific friend, Ron West, that has known him since they were 12, I don't really like the the term of boys will be boys, but just, you know, getting into things like, Ron West had told a story about there being a barrel outside the bus stop when they were kids and they lit it on fire and it was cold outside, (laughs) just to preface that. And um, so they lit the barrel on fire and had like, you know, were sitting there warming their hands and the bus driver came up and was not happy about it. But things like that, or um, Ron West had also said when they were in the dorm in Austin at UT, I'm still not really clear as to why exactly they did it, but they went from one level of the building out the window to to another level of the building downward using uh, the fire hose, I think. Anyways, I'm not really sure what why they did that, but that's those are some things that I've heard about uh, Brian. So it sounds like he was adventurous. It sounded like my mom would describe Brian as same quiet introverted, but from the collective vision from my sister and my mom, he seemed to be thoughtful. There's a list of gifts that 
he had written down uh, that I guess he was, you know, brainstorming about gifts he could give for Christmas. And he bought my sister a book. She was five at the time of his disappearance, but I believe this list was a little bit earlier than that. To me, that's very thoughtful for someone who's a, a teenager, you know, between 17 and 20. I mean, I thought of my nieces and, and nephew, but to think of buying them a gift when you have no money <laughs> or don't want to share it. <laughs> Usually that's the way that things are between, you know, 17 and 20. We learned a lot of other things about Brian that we want to share with you all too. Brian took piano lessons, but according to his teacher, he had no rhythm. He wasn't a picky dresser and wore ordinary, normal clothing. Brian also liked dogs. His family had a dachshund named Gretchen. Although Brian's family belonged to a local church, Brian wasn't religious. He also wasn't concerned with politics. He was known for having a sense of humor, and he was a smoker, but he had told people he was trying to quit. He also smoked pot and had a lockbox with weed in it, but he was allegedly also trying to quit smoking pot. An important fact about Brian is that he was always writing. He kept a journal and he wrote letters both to other people and to himself. Amanda told us about the style of the journal entries and how she finds it hard to believe everything that Brian wrote in them. Something to note is that Amanda also mentions Brian being arrested, which we'll discuss more later. I've had to piece things together through some letters that Brian had written, whether they're scratch copies or not, um, if he ever actually sent any of those letters as, I guess, a hard copy, um, as we would have called them. There are some letters that talk about what he was doing the night before, that he was with some friends, but that he wanted to continue to, I don't want to say party, but he wanted to continue to stay out. So he dropped his friends off and then he went back out. And then he talks about being in jail and waking up and being surprised that he wasn't charged for being drunk. And then I had spoken with a friend who had told me that he ran into Brian in Austin at like a party or get together or something. And Brian had told him about being at a quote discotheque. And I had to look up what a discotheque was. I I was finally like, okay, what is a discotheque? I was like, is it a bar? Is it like a place like Saturday night fever where they have the lights on the floor? What is what is a discotheque? <laughs> so I'm still not exactly clear on what it is. <laughs> just just to, you know, put it out there. Maybe it's just something you had to experience. So he was in um, the bathroom peeing at the urinal and two guys attacked him. And he had mentioned in the in the letter something about killing two guys or something like that. Before I had heard this story from this friend, my sister and I were thinking, what is he talking about? Killing two guys. And I've said this on another podcast that if you look at Brian's pictures, you you wouldn't think that this dude's going to kill two guys and it'd be questionable whether he killed them or not. It's not like he's this really buff guy. I don't know if 
bodybuilding was a thing back in the 70s, but Brian sure wasn't a bodybuilder. And also, okay, you have to also put yourself back into the fact that he's, you know, a 19-year-old kid and things are a little bit more dramatic. And then he was also drunk. So, you know, a little bit more dramatic on top of that. So after learning about the story, it was kind of like, oh, okay, but why would he say that? You know, it's almost like, because I'm older. I'm not 25. I'm not 20. You know, I'm in my late 30s. So I'm going, oh, what a cute little kid. <laughs> Knowing that he was a bit over dramatic in his retelling of this incident, does it affect or color how you view the rest of his journal entries? Yeah, a little bit. So it it would have to go with the the victimology again that you're trying to because I didn't know him. And you're not necessarily you, but I am trying to find out who he was as a person. I'm trying to figure out how how dramatic he was in his everyday spoken language and 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 his writings is he playing this up for a girl to make him sound more tough it just goes along with the small pieces to put in as who he was and his personality along with his his thinking at the time and i do also use a lot of my own history i guess and experience and what it was like to to be that age and how how serious things seemed at the time. You know, it's almost like you do something wrong and you're like, oh, my parents were going to kill me, you know, and they're not going to kill you. In fact, they're just going to be angry at you because they want better for you or they want the best thing for you. But for you to dramatize it and say, they're going to kill me. Well, that's that's not what they're really going to do. To me, it, it, it's just more of that teenager kind of thinking. For me, I really had to go back to being a 19-year-old to, to go through and read those. But then, of course, he was a, a boy, and that's different for me. And then it was in the 70s, and that's different. So I had to put on a lot of hats, and that's a lot of filters and layers. <laughs> in addition to sometimes working at the family restaurant, Brian worked as a night stalker for Safeway from 1973 to 1974. He saved all the money he earned working at the store to buy a new car, which he bought in January 1974, a white Toyota Celica. Brian graduated from Westchester High School in 1974. That same year, he registered to vote and was accepted to the University of Texas at Austin. He planned to live at the Castilian, an off-campus private dorm. He submitted an application and a $50 security deposit in April 1974. Then on June 7, 1974, Brian got into a car accident at a Houston intersection, and it totaled his new Toyota. According to insurance forms, this is what Brian said happened. I was driving east on Highway 71 through Smithville, and a station wagon pulled out from my right to make a left turn. I tried to stop and turn out of the way, but was unable to do so totally. My front left hit her left back. Brian's car had around $1,000 of damage, and the other car had around $300 of damages. 
which is about $6,300 and $1,900 in today's money. Brian was then able to use the insurance money from the accident to buy a used 1972 Mazda RX-2 sedan. It was white with an orange interior. Brian had some leftover money after buying the Mazda, so he put it in the bank. Now, Brian had a love-hate relationship with this Mazda. Some of its flaws included having to push it in order to start it and not being able to listen to the radio while the headlights were on. It had a Texas license plate that read AEG81. Brian started at the University of Texas at Austin in the fall of 1974, where he studied architectural engineering. He was accepted to the Castilian dorm where he lived with a friend from high school. He wasn't considered a popular kid, but he was well-liked on campus. He continued to be quiet and shy, but he would spend time running and playing basketball. He also didn't shy away from having fun and partying on campus. He would occasionally go to beer bus parties, would drink alcohol, which it's important to note that the legal drinking age at this time was 18 years old. And he would smoke cigarettes. Something that he wrote in his journal was that he used running as both a way to lose weight and to try to lower his nicotine consumption. In addition to all of that, Brian did well in school. In fact, he did so well that he made it onto the engineering college's dean list for the spring 1975 semester. He ended the semester with a 3.4 GPA and took the following classes, literature and composition, calculus, engineering physics, United States 1492 to 1865, basketball, and intro to engineering. Brian returned home to Houston for the summer break of 1975, where he spent his time working at Safeway. Then something happened in July of that year. Brian was pulled over and arrested for having 0.2 ounces of weed on him. The reasons that he was pulled over were listed as both driving on the wrong side of the street and because he ran a stop sign. But it's unclear which of these reasons is true. Someone did bail Brian out of jail, but his family doesn't know who did this and they would like to know. As a result of the arrest, Brian was sentenced to 30 days in jail and probation. He appeared in court on September 5th, 1975. He had to get a permission slip to go back to school, and that's most likely because it was in a different city, and he kept this permission slip in his wallet. I think that my family was somewhat under the impression that my grandfather may have known that Brian had been arrested. I don't know for a fact that he did. What gave you the impression that your grandfather knew? My father gave me the impression that my grandfather may have known. I don't think that my other family members, such as my other uncle, thought that my grandfather knew. I think that was kind of like, he may or may not have known. Things seemed to have gone back to normal for Brian after the arrest, but Amanda did tell us something interesting that gave us insight into Brian's thoughts that summer. So in the summer of 75, my other uncle, Brian's oldest brother, was actually living in my grandparents' house between his bachelor's and graduate school. So right before Brian was arrested, my, uh, my other uncle left to go to graduate school in India. So my uncle says that they would talk about more existential things. 
God and maybe you would even say philosophical things. My older uncle was also in the seminary at one point and left the seminary because he wanted to be more hands-on, helpful, um, and charitable. So if you were going to talk to anybody about philosophy or existential things, that's a good person to talk to. So, and him being the older brother, and they were also living in the same room. They had a huge room. It's two twin beds. That was the only thing that I know that was going on. I I don't know anything else that would have happened. I in fact I don't know if Brian was was working at that time during the summer. This episode is sponsored by EveryPlate. Looking to budget your food expenses in the new year? Save big and eat great with America's best value meal kit. Their meals are cheaper than your average fast casual meal. So ditch the takeout to save money while still enjoying fresh, satisfying meals. They're the easiest way to eat affordably. Put the money you save towards making 2024 plans. You can be like me and my husband. We sizzled our way into the new year with $1 steak for life. Simply add a 10 ounce ranch steak to your weekly order for just $1 per box while your subscription is active. Now that's raising the steaks for dinner. With every plate, you can rest assured that you're making a sustainable choice. Every plate offsets 100% of their delivery emissions, and their meals have a 31% lower carbon footprint on average than supermarket meals of the same portion. Plus, nearly all packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas of the U.S. We love to see it. I love using every plate because I know when I come home from a long day of the nine to five grind that I have a nutrient-dense meal that's already pre-packaged, ready to go, and easy to make in my fridge. Every plate's also saved me time and money, and it can save you time and money too. I'm so thankful for the money that I saved with every plate because recently my dog's been suffering with a couple of health issues and it's been really expensive. So every plate had my back and helped me save a couple bucks while I deal with that. And with the time I saved, I'm able to actually be with my family and my pup while she heals. Get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering the code 49diaries. Subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steak. That's $149 per meal plus $1 steaks for life by going to everyplate.com slash podcast and entering code 49diaries. Remember, subscription must be active to qualify and redeem $1 steak. You guys, that's up to a $110 value. You don't want to miss out. Thank you so much to EveryPlate for making this episode possible. In the fall of 1975, Brian returned to Austin for his second year of college. He and his roommate from the previous year lived together, along with one other person in an apartment in the Tin and Ford apartment complex. Brian's family has described both of these roommates as having been very helpful in Brian's case. Unfortunately, this semester didn't go as well for Brian as the previous semester had. He only passed nine out of the 12 credit hours that he was taking. Brian went home for winter break that year and then returned to campus for the spring 1976 semester. The next time he went home was on January 30th, and he returned to campus on February 2nd. However, when Brian got back to campus, he stopped going to three out of his four classes. He started telling his friends and family that he wasn't happy with his grades or his classes and that he was feeling a little bit lost. 
he applied to withdraw from the university, this time without telling anyone. Brian's family wouldn't learn about the withdrawal until 2021, 45 years after his disappearance. Brian admitted in journal entries to feeling like his life was missing something intangible. Brian's application to withdraw was approved by the Dean of the Engineering College on March 9, 1976. Brian had agreed to return to campus for summer courses, but he wanted to withdraw at that time because he saw that it would allow him to drop his courses without keeping the grade on his transcript. Brian withdrew from four courses in total, Intro to Computer Methods, Dynamics, Mechanics of Solids, and Calculus II. After March 9th, the day the withdrawal was approved, Brian's roommates didn't see him again. Because of this, it's unclear when Brian actually went missing. At some point, Brian went home to Houston to get the title for his Mazda, but his family isn't sure if this was before or after March 9th. Brian was scheduled to appear in court for his arrest on May 15th, 1976. Now, according to court records, there was a plea of no contest. That basically means that you don't plead guilty, but you accept a conviction as if you had pled guilty. However, it's unknown if Brian actually attended the hearing or if it was pleaded on his behalf. The case was eventually dismissed on August 5th, 1976. The Austin Police Department alleged that on March 9th, Brian left the UT campus and drove to Colorado to, according to some reports, sell his Mazda or work on a dude ranch. Other theories allege that Brian was going to Colorado to, quote, find himself. The Austin Police didn't give a reason for why Brian could have gone to Colorado. But we know he ended up there because when he got to Colorado, his car broke down. He eventually went back to Texas where he visited his parents' house to get the title to the car so he could sell it. His mother then dropped him off at a bus station in Katy, Texas. And unfortunately, the date of when this happened is unknown. But Brian was never seen or heard from again. That's the police's theory. Amanda, however, says... That no one knows for sure if Brian found the title to the Mazda. It's also unknown if he went back to his apartment in Austin at all. Brian's roommates didn't notice that he was gone until after spring break when he failed to return to campus. And according to the girlfriend of one of Brian's friends, Brian had mentioned going on a trip, which is believed to be the trip to Colorado. But some people question if Brian even went to Colorado because there's no concrete evidence showing that he did so. In fact, All of his belongings were still in his apartment, including his wallet and driver's license. According to a Reddit user named Vargo Rep, Brian's family had been called by a mechanic who told them that he had Brian's Mazda and that Brian hadn't returned to pick it up. The mechanic allegedly told them that the car had been broken into and he wanted them to pay him for keeping the car and for the work he had done on it. Though it's unclear what happened to the car after that. Vargo Rep claimed that Brian's family doesn't have evidence of the call or evidence that they paid the mechanic. Vargo Rep did some digging to try and find what happened to the car, but that was made difficult by the fact that they had the license plate number, but not the VIN. They contacted authorities in Texas and Colorado, which both said that the license plate and Brian's driver's license were invalid. Mazda dealerships in Houston and Austin don't have records of the car's VIN. There is no evidence of the title being transferred out of Brian's name. Eventually, Brian's sister went to his apartment and packed up all of his belongings. In his room, she found a newspaper dated March 9th. This gave the family the impression that he hadn't been in the apartment since then. 
the items in his wallet were put into an envelope labeled things in wallet. These things included the permission slip from the probation office, a business card for a chiropractor in Austin, a business card for an attorney at law in Austin, a business card for industrial medical doctor, a Black Angus card, a Houston Public Library card, a Westchester Senior High ID card, a computation center stub for the university, a university map, and a daily schedule. Other things from the apartment include Brian's watch, ribbons from childhood, a few random coins, and a bank journal. As we were researching the case and talking to Amanda, one of the things that stuck out the most for me in the things in wallet envelope was the card to the chiropractor. So I asked Amanda why Brian might have been interested in going to see a chiropractor. We know that he had an external tibial torsion, and this caused his feet to point out to the side. But as far as we know, he hadn't seen a chiropractor for this in the past. So you talked about the chiropractor, how Brian made appointments to go see the chiropractor, but he ended up disappearing. Do we know if he was injured? What was his reasoning for going yeah, I don't know that he he was injured or anything or why exactly he was going to the chiropractor. I mean, to be honest, it seemed like Brian had a, I, I think that around this age is when you start having arguments within yourself about being an adult, but then still being a child. And I, I think he was a little ahead of his time and thinking that uh, seeing a chiropractor would just, you know, aid in being healthy. Even now, there are there are some people who are like, chiropractic is, you know, wizardry or whatever. But then the people who are, have been to the chiropractor and stuff like that, they're like, yeah, I just go because it, it, I feel better when I go. And so they continue to go. And it's just part of their health routine. And... In, in some of Brian's writings, there are things that he's doing that seem more on the adult side, but are, I guess, progressive uh, for the 70s, like jogging. He was jogging. Apparently, the jogging thing wasn't really around until the early 80s. I mean, I could be corrected if I'm wrong. Again, I wasn't alive, but he was jogging then. And he was trying to quit smoking. And as far as I know, people were still smoking on airplanes and thinking that it was just fine to smoke in the 70s. Amanda also told us about her personal investigation into Brian's disappearance. So I'm going to kind of run down in the order in which I found these things out. And this also goes into why I had to make a timeline. So after I got all this information from my aunt, I guess at the time it was two boxes of stuff, and I'm going through all of it, my mom mentions that she has uh, an envelope with the, a check. And I, I believe what, what she had was the envelope of his last report card. I think those are the two things that she had. I don't know why my mom had them, but she did. So I scanned them and then put them into the timeline. But those two things, I think I was aware of first. And I didn't realize how important they would be at the time. It was kind of like, okay, I have these things. I put them aside. And then in my questioning of trying to find out 
where Brian was. I think my questioning was along the lines of thinking that he was still going to school and I wanted to know if he just disappeared. I had not figured out that it was spring break yet. I was trying to figure out why would he go to Colorado? What's in Colorado? Is there an event that he wanted to go to in Colorado? Why at this time? Why would he just leave school in the middle of a semester? So that's why I started calling UT and asking all the questions. And that's when I found out that he'd withdrawn. And then I'm also thinking at the time, okay, well, in Texas, spring break is in March. Maybe he went to Colorado for spring break. So then I went and found the academic schedule for UT. And yes, that is exactly what it was, that he went for spring break. And all of this is happening with uh, me speaking to his roommates. And they're not remembering exactly at the time. Yeah, he left for spring break. They're not putting together that I don't know that it's spring break. They're talking just, yeah, he went. And I'm going, okay, this is when I found out that it was spring break, I, I call them back or I text them back or email them. And I'm like, hey, I found out that it was spring break. Does that sound like when when this happened? And they're like, yeah, that, that sounds right. So this also goes back to how hard it is to remember things that happened this long ago and, you know, knowing things and then not speaking to somebody who doesn't know things, um, which was me at the time. That's kind of how that came about. Then I found out, I'm trying to remember about the bus tickets. So I have these bus tickets um, when I'm looking through all of his papers and I'm trying to find out where this fits in. Why doesn't he have other bus tickets? Why didn't he save if he if he went to Houston more often? Why did he only save these bus tickets? And so again, I have to go and I put them in the timeline, trying to just figure out when all these things happened. And then probably one of the last things that I went through was his actual folders that he had saved from uh, his college courses. And I figured out which ones belonged to what semester. And then I started going through them. And it is very clear which ones were from the last semester based on how thin they were. And then it is also very clear as to the fact that he was still going to one of his classes regularly. And he may have been going to the other ones, but he wasn't doing work in them based on the dates of the documents or the, you know, worksheets or the the dated documents, I guess you could say. <laughs> and the one that he continued to go to was a computational class. The other classes he didn't, if he was attending, did not continue to do the work. Um, as for the the chiropractor, that mattered to me because why would you... It, the question is, did he disappear on purpose 
was he going to come back? Did he go and kill himself? Those are the questions that everybody has. Well, if he paid to go to the chiropractor a week before he left, well, that doesn't say that you're going to go and kill yourself. And if you went and withdrew from class, that doesn't say you're going to go and kill yourself. Why would you go to the trouble of doing that? Because it was a big deal to withdraw. You had to have approval from the dean. Yeah, it just didn't make any sense for someone to plan those things or pay for those things or do those things if they weren't planning on continuing to live. And I do want to touch on the fact that I I do understand that, you know, someone who is suicidal is not necessarily going to plan their suicide. Sometimes it is spur of the moment. But it didn't sound like that was the direction that he was headed. And then also finding the piece of paper that said that he had planned to come back to attend during the summer. All of those things to me sound like he had intent to come back, to continue to live his life, you know, the life he was living, that he was just going to take a break. So that those things all play into each other to me. Did he know anyone in Colorado? Was there family there? Any childhood friends that may have moved there for college? So not that we know of. I have not found anybody that he knew in Colorado that had moved or anything like that. What I have found is a letter from a female. So you have to infer from her letter back to Brian, what Brian may have said, but she is in a place called Cheyenne. And of course, the first Cheyenne I'm thinking of is Cheyenne, Wyoming. And then uh, you go and look at the map and see how far Cheyenne, Wyoming is from Colorado. Uh, so that's what I did. It's, it's actually pretty close to the state of Colorado. Colorado is a whole state, not just a city. (laughs) But from Texas to Cheyenne, Wyoming, you would most likely go through Colorado. So in this letter, though, she mentions that Brian shouldn't come and visit her because she has a boyfriend. And to me, it doesn't sound like or look like, because we don't have any more letters from this, this female, that the correspondence either continued or that Brian decided he was going to go see her. We don't even know how who this girl is, how he met her. Just something about being in Texas. So highlights from it are the girl's name is Kim. She either has a sister, a friend, a cousin, or somebody that Brian also knows by the name of Karen. There are other podcasts who are like, I don't want you to even throw out a theory that's conjectured. I have to try theories on to see if they make sense with the way things were headed. And it doesn't stop me from having a more general, like, anything's possible. But I just have to try them on. I definitely feel like that's important (laughs) in especially cases like Brian's because... These are people that are potentially still alive and 
you know, may not know that they could help solve this case. Right. It just, I mean, they could have a small piece of the puzzle. If we would talk to her and she says, that was the last, the last thing I ever heard from Brian. I never heard from him again. Well, that tells me that to stop looking at her, to stop looking as Wyoming being a place he could have gone or Colorado being a place he could have met her. I, so it would be helpful to, to hear something like that. The investigation into Brian's disappearance was minimal at best. His parents didn't file a missing persons report because for some reason they were told not to. They hired a private investigator, but despite a few interviews and looking into a few different things, he wasn't able to make any headway. Unfortunately, this private investigator has since passed. Brian's mom contacted the Salvation Army in 1977, asking their missing persons department to look into Brian's disappearance. And they told her in April 1978 that they were going to investigate Brian's case. They discovered that Brian had told friends about traveling to both Colorado and California. They also tried to get the Social Security Administration to send a letter to Brian in case he had sent his mail to be forwarded to a different address. Then they asked his parents to write a letter to Brian saying that they were concerned and wanted to talk to him, though it's unclear if they ever sent the letter. The Salvation Army's investigation closed in 1980 after not finding Brian. And it's important to note that Brian's social security number has been quiet since 1976. Brian's family didn't officially report him missing until February 2nd, 2021. They had believed that Brian would come home or get in contact with them in his own time. On April 29th, 2021, the Austin Police Department announced that they were looking for Brian and needed the public's help in doing so. Sometime after this in 2021, an age-progressed image of Brian was produced and released to the public. This sketch shows what Brian is believed to look like at 66 years old, but today he would be 68. Brian's mom and sister, as well as Amanda, have given DNA to databases such as CODIS and GEDmatch in the event that remains are found. Brian's dental records no longer exist, so the best way to identify his remains if found would be through familial DNA. Amanda told us that there's been a lot of false information about her uncle's disappearance that she wants to set straight. They're more of things from opinion of others where, like I mentioned earlier, that the the roommate, one of the roommates won't discuss Brian's disappearance. That is absolutely false. Some people are just more private than others. I, I don't know his reasonings, but I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily offended by the fact that he doesn't want to speak to podcasts. So yeah, <laughs> that's, that's absolutely false that he won't discuss Brian's disappearance. Other things would be that my family didn't care that Brian uh, disappeared. That is absolutely false. And I almost feel like you would have had to know our family or be in our family to understand how, you know, they coped with things. Amanda has been her uncle's champion over the last few years, but Everyone in her family wants him home. Unfortunately, both Brian's father and mother have passed since his disappearance. Now, here's where we need all of our listeners' help. If you or someone you know has information about the disappearance of Brian Vargo, please contact the Austin Police Department's Missing Persons Unit at 
512-974-4123. That's 512-974-4123. Make sure to follow us on all of our socials at The Murder Diaries Pod. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.